Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I've labeled this uh, section of five chapters at the end of Luke as the fulcrum of time. Now, you may remember from high school science that a fulcrum is the balancing point on which a lever pivots. The significance of this week in the life of Jesus, these events, is the pivot on which everything has been looking forward since Genesis chapter 3. And everything from the book of Acts until the end of time looks back to this week. In today's scripture, Jesus observes all the remembrances of Passover and he repurposes it by adding a superlative event that will be remembered and proclaimed until he comes again. Because today's verses attach the atoning death of Christ as the perfect Lamb of God to the remembrance of Passover lambs that had been sacrificed ever since the Exodus. 
this new meaning is so significant, I am choosing to focus two weeks on this feast. This week, we will look at the preparations for the feast, and next week, we will look at the observance of the first last meal. We will observe communion together, and we will see the overlap between the Lord's Supper and the Passover feast as observed by the disciples. You know, as I consider the ancient world, the ancient world included Greeks and Romans and Jews, as well as many other people groups throughout the region. And just as two weeks ago, some observed Columbus Day, while others were observing Indigenous Peoples Day, or in a week from now, some will be celebrating Dress Up and Free Candy Day, while others are praying to saints, others are calling on spirits, And, of course, all godly people will be remembering the climax of the Reformation. Not that I'm hinting my hand at what I'll be thinking about next Sunday. Luke describes for us a setting where several priorities are at work, just as it would be in our day whenever we come to a holiday. Because I actually see that there are several priorities that are all being pursued at the same time. There are various sets of plans and priorities that people are playing out. The first plan is that the crowds sought education or actually entertainment without a cost. They wanted to hear the nice ideas, but they weren't willing to pay the price of discipleship. Due to the crowding of Passover pilgrims, Jesus did not stay in Jerusalem, but he actually slept on the outskirts of town while he taught during the day in Jerusalem. The distance from, as we see in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 21, the distance from the temple to the Mount of Olives was about half the distance that Sierra and Nora ran yesterday. About two and a half kilometers between the temple and where Jesus slept at night. As a matter of fact, I had a visit with Charles McCabe earlier this week, And he was telling me that on a trip to Israel, their tour guide pointed out a cave on the Mount of of Olives where it is very, very likely that Jesus would have camped in that cave as we read about here in verses 37 and 38. These are real places where real people did real things. But as Jesus is commuting... From the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, the crowd gathers during the day and then disperses at night. The crowd is curious as to what this 
prophet from Galilee has to say. But compared to those who hailed his entry, their personal conviction is growing colder. They wanted to hear the ideas. They wanted to explore his thoughts, but they weren't willing to pay the cost of becoming a disciple that Jesus had explained in chapter 18. If you want to be a disciple of mine, this is what you can expect to pay. And they wanted to play without pay. But there was a second group of plans that we see in the first two verses of chapter 22. And that is, not only did the crowds want education or entertainment without cost, but in verses 1 and 2, we see that the chief priests were seeking power without opposition. They did not want to be opposed. They wanted their power in place without anybody questioning it. The desires of the lead religious power brokers is moving now from their desire to actual plans. Craig Keener writes that the Jewish literature reports that the high priest bullied those who opposed them. Against some popular misconceptions, the the Gospels are no more anti-Jewish for their reports of this high-level corruption and abuse than any of the ancient rabbis, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Even the historian Josephus talked about how the priests were bullies because they wanted power unquestioned. And we see that actually the the conflict between their desires, which we saw in chapter 19, verse 47, and the public sentiment, which we see in chapter 19, verse 48, the people loved Jesus, the priests hated Jesus, and there's a conflict between their desire and the public sentiment. And this conflict had been simmering for days. Each day that... Jesus' corner of the temple court fills with people. It's like pressure on the burr under the saddle of the chief priest. But remember, the evil one is not omniscient, but he is observant. So as the evil one, Satan, the enemy of our souls, observes this conflict between the chief priest and Jesus, he sees an opening, not by moving the crowd to rebellion, but Satan sees his opening by convincing an insider to betray Jesus. So in verses 3 3 through 6, Satan begins to seek a humanity without a Savior. Satan likes humans who don't trust and believe in God. Some use verses 3 through 6 here to describe demonic possession of a Christian. Just as Satan entered Judas, that demons can enter into Christians. But we must observe that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, as prophesied in Joel chapter 2, does not happen until 50 days 
after Passover on the day of Pentecost. So Judas did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit that you and I have. And so when Satan entered into Judas, it is not like an experience that any of us have to fear of demons entering into us because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. The indwelling or the possession of a person's psyche in these verses does not encounter the same resistance that would be experienced by a believer today. If the seal of the Holy Spirit is upon you, Satan's not going to be able to make easy entrance. I, I kind of noticed at the football game Friday night, whenever they would kick the ball, the student section acted like the seagulls, and they would all chant together. What, what would they chant? Mine, 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 mine. It's like, the ball is mine, mine, mine. And so if a demon were to try to influence your psyche, we can hear the Holy Spirit saying, uh-uh, mine. Mine, 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 mine. Because we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that defends against Satan entering as he did Judas in this verses in front of us. Yet even in our experience, several have experienced psychotic breaks in a way that sane reality gives way to the delusions of wrong thinking. You've seen people who had a break with reality. And that's what happens with Judas. He breaks with reality because of satanic influence and he aligns with the enemies of Christ. There are various responses to the virus that we know as COVID-19. And these various responses reveal that policies are often being driven by power and by pushback more than by science. And the, the body of data that you choose to emphasize has very little influence on those who desire a different outcome. And I think Judas was in the same point. He was brought to a point in his life where Satan had influenced him, he had come to conclusions, and he did not want to be confused with the facts. And so he aligned himself with the chief priest. Because Satan is seeking a humanity without a savior. You know, Satan has been attempting to dethrone God since before the foundation of the earth. Isaiah chapter 14 tells about the great rebellion. And Satan scored a major victory in humanity when Eve chose to disregard the instruction of God in Genesis 3.6. And while many, next Sunday, will appeal to Satan's power, Jesus himself revealed Satan's strategy that underlies verses 3 through 6 in front of us. 
While some think that Satan is a great power with which to align, Jesus tells us Satan's strategy. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. If Satan could prevent Jesus' atonement from taking place, his theft, his death, and his destruction of humanity would be complete. And Satan realized that desperate times required desperate measures, but unwisely he overplays his hand and he plays right into God's omniscient and omnipotent strategy. And by the time the events of today's chapter occur, Passover has been observed every year for nearly 1,500 years. Whether they were in the wilderness or in the promised land or in captivity, this feast required specific and meticulous details. Because the observance of Passover demands... Preparation. Verse 7 of chapter 22 mentions both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Passover was a one-night meal that was followed by a six-day separation. So it was a seven-day time of observance. Spencer Jones describes this Passover experience in this way. In the tenth plague, leading up to the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, God killed the firstborn of the land of Egypt. He commanded the Israelites to perform certain observances so that he would pass over their houses and not destroy their firstborn. These observances included slaughtering a small flock animal and sprinkling its blood on the doorpost and the lintels of their house to mark it as one to be passed over. The Israelites were to eat the roasted meat of the animal with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And God established an annual commemoration of these events involving the sacrifice of a flock animal, the eating of unleavened bread and bitter herbs, the word Passah, from which we get Passover, refers both to the original event in Egypt and to the annual commemoration of that event. I noticed these seven verses, chapter 22, verses 7 through 13, <coughs> excuse me, that they include the word prepare four different times. Four different times Jesus told his disciples to prepare for Passover. Passover was so significant that it required intentionality and thought and planning, and desire. The first thing that they had to do to prepare the room for Passover was to um, sweep the room so that it would become clean. 
they cleaned the house, they cleaned the room from any leaven, yeast, baking soda, or any food that was prepared with a leavening agent. Because to consume food prepared with leaven was to be penalized by being cut off from the people of Israel. And it was so serious that to prevent any accidental eating of a cookie that happened to have been made with baking soda, the whole house was swept clean of any leaven, which may be the source of the practice that we get called spring cleaning. In the time of spring, they would sweep all of the leaven out of the house. And just as a Jewish home prepares by removing all these symbols of sin, Christians are to prepare before we observe the Lord's Supper. So I encourage you to give thought between now and next Sunday, as we will be observing the Lord's Supper, as, it, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11 that tells us, but let a person examine himself then. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Just as the Jewish family would sweep clean the house before Passover, it is wise for us to confess and to clean our lives before feasting at the Lord's table. The room had to be swept clean was the first preparation. The second preparation was that a lamb was to be prepared. Now, scholars debate whether Jesus, as the Lamb of God, in John chapter 1, where John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Scholars argue as if John realized he was the Passover Lamb. But by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul explicitly looks back to the death of Christ as the sacrificed Passover animal. So by the New Testament, we see the connection between Jesus' death and the Passover lamb. Later on in verse 15, Jesus will specifically connect his suffering with the Passover meal. Douglas Mangum has summarized the significance of the Passover lamb in this way. He says, typically, there was an unblemished male animal for sacrifice, typically typically one per family, that was selected on the 10th day of the month. Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. Exodus 12, 6 tells us that that animal was sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. What happened with that lamb between day 10 and day 14? See, they would put the the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house, according to verse 7. They would roast the lamb with fire, not eating it raw or boiled, proof that God likes barbecue. And then they would eat the entire roasted lamb with unleavened bread, matzah, 
and with bitter herbs, meorim. Verse 8 of Exodus chapter 12, verse 10 of Exodus chapter 12, tells us that they would eat all of the lamb that night, and then they would actually burn any leftovers that remained. They would eat the the meal in haste, ready to leave home at a moment's notice. Now, any of you who have done 4-H projects, by the way, next Sunday is going to be 4-H Sunday here at Flint Hills Community Church. Any of you who have ever done a 4-H project know that there is a difference between a pasture calf and a bucket calf. And the animal that was used for the Passover sacrifice had to be a small enough animal that the family could eat it in one meal. So if we know that pet animals have a special place in our heart, if we know that it was a small animal, it was probably a small and a cuddly and a furry and a, oh, isn't that a cute animal? An animal that would have been selected and preserved for four days, probably preserved inside the home to protect the animal from getting any blemishes or any scratches or any cuts. And uh, I found that just one day in a home is all that it takes for a small furry animal to get a special place in the heart of the children. So if the animal was selected on the 10th day, stayed in the home for four days, and was killed on the 14th day, there were four days when the animal was protected and cared for, as to not develop any blemishes. And I'm sure the killing of that Paschal lamb prompted some tough family decisions. Because this was a lamb that wasn't just a pasture beast. It was a lamb with which the family had identity. And Jesus is not just a distant God. Jesus came to earth as the Passover lamb with which we can know and we have an affinity and we have an affection. And it was this Jesus who was sacrificed for us, not a distant God, not an anonymous criminal. It was the one who was in our home that we loved. They would clean the house. They would prepare the lamb. And the third preparation is on that 14th day, the blood would be applied. The blood on the lintel and the post was a sign that the people living in this house were trusting in Yahweh for deliverance. And some have pointed out that the application of blood to the top and to the sides resembles very much our Catholic and our Orthodox friends who make the sign of the cross. From the top to re-dip and to apply the blood on the sides. Each year, the the cleaning of the house, the lamb, the blood was used to remind that Yahweh would eventually not just cover over, but do away with the penalty of sin. 
Each year, Passover says, yes, this is how God did deliver us, and we believe this is how God will deliver us. Because the observance of Passover in the past yields future promises. See, Jesus indicates in verses 14 through 16 that this Passover would be different. Because this is the last Passover that would look to the past and to the future. Because Jesus says in verse 14 that the hour had come. David Powell and Eckhart Schnabel comment, First, the Passover meal represented the historical exodus of the people of Israel during the time of Moses, emphasizing the deliverance from bondage in Egypt by recitation of the Passover liturgy from Exodus chapter 12. But secondly, Passover, as it was observed for 1,500 years, anticipated the messianic deliverance of the last days that the prophets had announced and that Israel continued to hope for, which was expressed in the singing of the halal. And our Jewish friends, to this very day, continue to observe Passover in that way, looking back to Moses, looking forward to a messianic deliverer. But Jesus indicates in these verses... There was a change at this Passover because this year the hour had come that they would look back to Moses and after this Passover the true observance would look back to what God did through Moses, back to what God did in the person of Jesus and in a way that it proclaims it until he comes again. So it's not just two parts. We see to history looking forward to one future event in this Passover. Verse 15 tells us about the suffering that would be endured. You know, we frequently recall the Passover lamb. We recall the blood or the wine and the unleavened bread when we observe communion. But there was another essential element to the Passover. They ate the lamb with matzah and bitter herbs. The ancient Jews always ate with bitter herbs, and modern Jews actually dip the bitter herbs, the parsley, into salt water as a remembrance of the tears of their people. And as they dip the parsley into the salt water and they taste the tears, Jesus says, Passover speaks of my suffering that is about to happen. Jesus prophesies that there will be a kingdom, but the kingdom cannot begin until the suffering of his blood being spilt and his body being broken. And then verse 16 talks about, but this will be fulfilled. Jesus says, I've longed to have this Passover because I'm not going to eat with you again until I do it in the kingdom. Now, some in other Christian traditions see verse 16 in front of us 
literally fulfilled with Christ's presence in the Eucharist whenever they take the bread and the wine. Some in Christian tradition see this fulfilled in a spiritual way in the Lord's Supper. When we observe the Lord's Supper in faith, that the Lord's presence is with us. But I believe these understandings, either of a literal or a spiritual presence of the Lord, are inadequate. Because verse 16 does not say that he will be present as the disciples eat. It says he will eat it. And Christ does not consume the bread in either a literal or a spiritual presence in communion. But Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, speaks of a future marriage feast where Jesus will have with his bride the church. It tells us that there will be a time that Jesus will eat the feast with the church. There is a future fulfillment that Revelation 19 speaks of. So today we have seen the, the plans of the crowd. Entertain me, but don't ask me to pay a price. We've seen the strategy of Satan. He's going to steal, to kill, to destroy if he can take the Savior out of humanity. We've seen the strategy of Judas and the chief priest. But even when we see all of these plans, notice God is still in control. God had a plan before the foundation of the world. He hinted at this plan by starting the annual remembrance and the anticipation of Passover. And Jesus clearly states that this Passover is extra significant because he is about to suffer and inaugurate a new kingdom. The application for us today in this sermon is that when people and powers seem to be controlling the shots, we must remember that God is at work and we must look for His purpose and His plan in the events we observe. And the pinnacle of God's plan is that our salvation is made possible only through the death burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Amen? We believe our redemption is not accomplished with the blood of bulls and goats, but only with the precious blood of Jesus that takes away the sin of the world. I'd ask the question, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and I'm